Welcome to Halal Money Matters presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Monir Salam. I'm Christopher Patton. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk, uh, Chris, about, uh, um, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ether and half, most people don't even know what they are, but yet they, they, they figure out a way to buy it or sell it or try to take advantage of it. Every day there's a headline about what Bitcoin's doing or, you know, somebody who's really into it. But I think a lot of people, they've seen the headlines, but what is this? I think of, yeah. some people have kind of skipped past that or they're, they're not sure. Maybe they're afraid to ask. Yeah. My, my favorite story is I was literally sitting in a restaurant in Chicago and uh, I overheard a conversation between the cashier and the customer and the cashier was explaining to the customer what Bitcoin was. Uh, just, <laughs> I, just, I just had to laugh aside from just any particular coin. What is it? What is the concept of crypto? And, and really, once you understand that, you can make your own, own, own judgment as to what you want to do. But knowledge is key. And that's what we try to do on the show. Right. And to that end, we had a great guest on Motassem Benuthman, founder of Portola Springs Capital, kind of focuses on digital assets like crypto. He's got a background in halal real estate investing. So he seemed like the perfect person to come on and explain to us what is going on. Yeah, I think if anybody, I think understands um, this this marketplace, and not from a again, it's not a you know buy this or sell that, but just from understanding from a market perspective, I think he's he's a great person. So Matasam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, I think a good place to start to talk a little bit about the history. I know there's a there's a lore behind it as well with with Bitcoin, the white paper, and um, that was that was written by some anonymous person named, some Japanese name, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, Satoshi Nakamoto. That's who it was, yeah, Satoshi Nakamoto. So yeah, so, you know, why don't you start off maybe with a brief history about where this all started? Uh, I, I think the, you know, the, a good place to start is just is simply when the internet was created, uh, there were uh, many people that tried to create internet money and uh, a few startup companies, uh, as well as some, some nonprofit efforts uh, ventured into the space. And really the, the main hurdle became around um, trust, right? That effectively to know, so if, if you recall from the MP3 days with the music industry and how they struggled with the copying of files, obviously anything that's digital can be replicated. So when you're talking about money, how do you protect that from being replicated? And a typical solution for that is to basically have a database that controls or, or states which uh, coins were transferred or which digital uh, currencies were transferred and so forth. And then that becomes kind of the, the ledger of record. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that when you have a company controlling this database, that's uh, arguably too much control for one entity. Uh, so with something as important as money, no one wants this, this no-named kind of startup to basically control that, that much power. So people try different ways to go about it and for a few decades there was there was no success until the basically the bitcoin white paper came out in, in late 2008 and that basically solved uh the problem using the blockchain technology and that uh, effectively created uh the blockchain is is basically a ledger uh so think of it almost like a database and it contains the transactions of bitcoin so whenever you send a bitcoin to someone else that blockchain is updated with that transaction 
token. So wallet A no longer has that Bitcoin and wallet B now has that Bitcoin. I remember uh, when I was just like reading about this, there there have been other societies in the past that have used some some maybe rudimentary form of this, right? I think there was one Aboriginal tribe in Australia that actually had a ledger on a rock um, that they used to record transactions. And I think that's where when I, when I was explained blockchain, that's how I was explained. Like, hey, this has been around for a long time. Just a way to do it digitally rather than on, on a hard stone or something, carve it into right. a stone or something. So. Right. I mean, there, there are a lot of interesting uh, analogs, right? Even if, if you think about one of the traits of Bitcoin is its immutability. And um, when you think of like in, in, in Islam, we have like in terms of the scholars and how they've come up with the hadith and which hadith are considered to be sahih. Uh, there's there's basically a, a lineage, right? And based on who were the people that transfer transferred uh, these hadith, and are these people trustworthy and so, and or not? Uh, a lot of this has some similarities in blockchain as well, in the sense of how you can trust that information. Mm-hmm. So going back to the white paper with the with the blockchain, uh, it created this this ledger, but it also had some very advanced uh, crypt- cryptography built in that enables basically this blockchain to be trusted the information in the blockchain to be trusted without you trusting the people running it. So that solved that original problem of having who runs this database and can you trust them with something as important as this. So currently and from the origin days, we do not necessarily refuse to trust the people running the blockchain. They're all in it with their own uh, incentives and and self-interest. But due to the cryptography involved, we can mathematically verify that the information has not been modified and therefore we can trust the information in it without trusting the people running the network. So just to break that down a little bit further. So basically what you're saying is if I was to transfer some Bitcoin over to you, um, and then, and then, and so then I guess the idea would be how the cryptography comes in into how do you secure that file, right? And then also how do you record it? And it's, so it's permanent and nobody can ever change it. Is that, is that what that cryptography is for? Co- correct. In terms of validating once, once you say I am receiving or I am sending this, this Bitcoin, uh, the cryptography is involved there to uh, validate that you are the true owner. And then there's also cryptography involved in regards to validating that the ledger, that this database, that this, these Bitcoin miners did not go back and change some things that happened, you know, days ago or years ago or whatever it may be, so to their benefit. And you mentioned early efforts were kind of a centralized, you might think to keep it in a centralized place, but in a public blockchain, the part of the appeal is that it's not centralized, it's decentralized. And that is that's part of what help keeps it uh, trustworthy. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So now you basically have uh, tens of thousands of Bitcoin nodes around the world. And these are basically just computers running the Bitcoin software. Uh, and they're run by all kinds of uh, people, some that are just believers and supporters of Bitcoin and others, the majority are just simply there for, for profit. So they run the software and the software is open source, right? So it's uh, software that anyone can read. And therefore that also gives some additional uh, credibility in terms of the trustworthiness of the software and its components. So let's break down a little further because there's a couple of things you mentioned that um, we just want to make sure everybody understands. So one was you mentioned a node, right? And the other one you mentioned was a ledger. So let's let's kind of define those a little bit um, as well. Ledger, we can probably understand it's where all the transactions are kept. But right. the one part of the part of the ledger, how does ledger, the distributed aspect and the block aspect, how does all, all three of those work together? 
Yeah, so you can think of the, the ledger as a database. Um, and the reason why it's called the blockchain is that every 10 minutes in Bitcoin's case, there is a new block that gets added. And that block basically lists all of the transactions that took place over the prior 10 minutes. And then it gets basically validated from a cryptography perspective and added to the prior list of blocks and therefore a blockchain, right? Um, so anytime you send a transaction, that's why sometimes if you're if you're sending something via Coinbase or another uh, exchange, sometimes they'll make you wait 10 or 20 minutes because they wanna make sure that transaction is basically validated into the uh, blockchain. So that's the, le the ledger uh, piece of it. Okay, and, and what does validation mean? So validation is making sure that the transaction is in fact accurate right so if it's if you are a customer of coinbase's and someone sends you 10 bitcoin coinbase will see that on the network within 10 minutes but there's there's usually a period of time where sometimes that that blockchain can be modified uh for the last basically every 10 minutes the more immutable it becomes, right? So Coinbase, when they try to reduce their risk, they'll say, we're going to wait for three blocks or 30 minutes uh, before we confirm your receipt of those 10 Bitcoin. So it's more a risk management piece just based on in case Bitcoin miners argue amongst each other or uh, about which, what the latest block really included. These miners aren't picking up the phone and starting to argue about it. So how are they arguing about, about the chain? Yeah, so you end up basically having on the network, let's say, for example, two Bitcoin miners claiming to have uh, basically solved uh, the, the recent block at the same time, and therefore they may have two different sets of information. So there's a resolution period where uh, there are two competing uh, sources of truth, and it takes a little time for the broader network to kind of start to all lean towards one of those two to become the, fi the final source of truth. All right. Um, this all right. process that is supposed to simplify things does sound very complicated. There's definitely yeah. a one step forward, two steps back thing with, with crypto as a whole. Um, so that's why I think like with a blockchain, especially when you go into like dispute resolution and things like that, that likely gets into the weeds and loses people. Let's talk a little bit about the miners then. What, is, what, what does a miner do? Yeah, so basically uh, miners are uh, computers running the Bitcoin software. And basically every 10 minutes, they embark on a race to solve a math problem effectively. Um, and the first person to the first computer or nodes to win that race basically becomes the source of truth for the next block. And they, they determine what that next block is and all the transactions included in it. And the reason why all these miners are racing is because one of the part of the token economics built into the Bitcoin software is that for every block that gets created, there's a reward of Bitcoin that gets minted and given to that miner. So that's where the profit comes in for Bitcoin miners. Currently, that means every 10 minutes, there's 6.25 Bitcoin that get awarded to a single miner. So these miners basically build, uh, turn on many machines and they try to get machines that are very fast and therefore they can solve this, this, this math problem faster. Um, and therefore earn the 6.25 Bitcoin. And then every 10 minutes that gets reset and they start again. So when, when Bitcoin first started, that 6.25 could have been worth $6.25. But now that 6.25 could be worth more than $120,000, um, making uh, it more, more competitive for other people to get involved. Correct. It is a little more complicated in the sense of the uh, a way to kind of address 
to make things attractive even from the early days is that the, the rewards many years ago was actually much higher, a much higher quantity of Bitcoin. And okay. then part of the code says every four years, we cut that reward in half. And that's why sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Bitcoin halving. And that's the point uh, it had took place last year and it will take place again in 2024 where the reward gets cut in half. So in 2024, the reward will become 3.15, et cetera. Um, okay. So well, that's also why typically price tends to go up after that halving because now your your new supply, which is also called inflation, gets reduced significantly. When you just touched on this a little bit, you know, Moni mentioned the price going up. What causes Bitcoin value to fluctuate? Yeah. So the um, so there, there's two pieces to that, right? One is, you know, how do you determine a price for Bitcoin? What should it be valued at and, and so forth? And, and then and two, kind of why is there so, so much volatility? And, and, and the, the answer to the first kind of uh, also answers the second, which is um, right now, so d- Bitcoin is a store of value, right? It's considered to be more like digital gold. Uh, and because it's so new, it's still... Uh, is is arguable in the context of what its value should be. Um, it's not like a stock which has a cash flow and tried and true methods of, of uh, calculating a, a value, right? So typically in the, in the stock market, you have agreed upon methodologies of valuing a company, okay? And there's say two or three really popular methods of, of valuing a company. What is not agreed upon necessarily is what are the inputs you put into those methods, right? With Bitcoin and the rest of crypto, there is not even an agreed upon pricing methodology or value valuation methodology. So therefore, the the range of possible uh, values is much wider, right? So that's a big part of the the volatility. Uh, Additionally, in in the context of what the value is with, with Bitcoin not necessarily having intrinsic value, it's tied to the story, right? Just like gold, when gold first started, it was basically two people that found this shiny rock and they decided that they're going to trade using this rock. And as they talk to more people and convince them to use that same uh, same rock, then the value of gold grew. So the same with Bitcoin, as more people believe in Bitcoin, the value of it uh, increases and therefore the the, the price uh, changes. So some one, one analogy I've, I've heard is to think of Bitcoin almost like a, a bank account. And as more people believe in the story of Bitcoin, they're going to put money in this bank account. And if you therefore believe that more and more people will believe in Bitcoin over time, you can assume that this bank account will get more and more money over time, right? And the price of Bitcoin will be whatever is in this bank account divided by 21 million, which is the total number of Bitcoin that will ever be created. Maximum amount of Bitcoin that will be created. What is that based on? Yeah, that's, so that's a really important point because when you think of the success of gold, uh, a big part of that success was because of how rare gold was, right? And, um, and that's part of why gold versus silver, et cetera, uh, won out. So Bitcoin's uh, architecture was initially designed based on that 21 million max supply. And as we described earlier in terms of how mining works, every 10 minutes, new Bitcoin is, is created, right? So today there's about 18.7 million Bitcoin that have ever been minted. And then that continues every 10 minutes to grow slightly. And, it, and because of the halving, 
cuts that inflation down. So right now the inflation amounts to sub 2% uh, annual inflation of Bitcoin. And then every four and, and three years from now, that'll become sub 1% and so forth. And, but, and by the way, comparatively to gold, gold is a little over 2% inflation. US dollar inflation is even higher than that. So we're already at a point where Bitcoin's inflation is lower than gold in the US dollar, which is an attractive element, right? And then that inflation drops uh, in half every every four years. So right now we have the 18.7 million and eventually it stops at that 21 million mark. Okay, so that sum of all of it all is, will be equal to 21, 21. million coins. Correct, and then it's uh, it's it's assumed that there are about three to four million Bitcoin that have already been lost uh, over the years, right? So think of someone many years ago in the 2011, 2012 stage, the, which had earned a lot of Bitcoins, had them on a computer at the time they weren't worth much, and then that computer got thrown away by accident or a person lost their password or whatever. So of that 21 million, three to four of them uh, are, are arguably lost forever. So basically it, it, this, this asset becomes a, a very, uh, could become very valuable in the, in the sense of its scarcity. Yeah, I, I, I don't admit this to many people, but uh, I did lose a couple of Bitcoin because I lost my passwords. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, so... Because again, happen. it was very early on. It was early on when I when I got it, and it was, I didn't know how much it was going to be worth eventually. So, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, impre- so. impressive! It's impressive that you were early. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I mean, so we, we talked about Bitcoin because it was obviously one of the pioneers uh, of it. But there's so many other other coins that are out there. So, um, what? How how do you explain the growth of the, all the other coins out there? Because are they based on Bitcoin, or are they completely different than Bitcoin? What's what's going on there? Yeah, so they basically took the blockchain architecture that Bitcoin is built on to create new technologies, right? So if the founders of uh, Ethereum uh, basically said, "Hey, let's let's see this this blockchain concept is really innovative, but let's use it for more than just the ledger capabilities of transaction of, of an asset, how who holds what many, however many coins. Let's use it for much more information, almost like a, a computer or the internet can." store uh, store data and done, do calculations and things like that. So Ethereum basically took the blockchain architecture and redesigned it in a manner to allow for that and allow for applications to be built on top of the blockchain. And therefore, that kind of spawns the opening of all of these other blockchain applications. And each of these applications creates their own tokens. And hence, now we're in the state where we have multiple thousands of different tokens and, and projects. So so it's it's interesting because you think of Bitcoin as basically a, a store of a store of value or digital gold, whereas most of the rest of crypto is really more of a technology play, right? So it's basically Web 3.0, and it's it's much more of uh, the, the next internet, so to speak. So it's a, from an investing standpoint, it's a very different outlook um, because now you're now you're trying to assess is this technology going to be adopted in the future, and where will value accrue in this adoption process, and so forth. And then that's what feeds into trying to decide from an investor standpoint 
which coins are, are good to invest in. But from a user standpoint, it's going to create these applications just like the internet did that you can use, right? So an example would be there's uh, decentralized finance today that's uh, that's basically has a lot of momentum. Most of it rides on top of Ethereum. And these are basically blockchain applications that are creating financial uh, use cases such as borrowing, lending, trading, etc. But because they're all on the blockchain and they all and these applications have uh, have tokens and they are decentralized, meaning they're not run by specific companies or people, that affords a lot more innovation than than uh, traditional finance or or even fintech has today. So um, some of the capabilities around that or advantages are regulatory arbitrage, right? So if you have a project that's doing DeFi or decentralized finance, you since it's decentralized, it does not necessarily have the same regulatory burdens that a traditional finance company has, right? So if I'm, if I'm trying to offer lending services to the unbanked, I have to deal with every territory that I, I expect to have customers and comply with all those uh, regulatory burdens, which, which usually are, are quite significant. Uh, and if you're building a DeFi application, it's arguable that you don't need to worry about that because this is just software that's floating out there and is not being run by a specific individual or company and therefore is, is much harder to uh, regulate. So it's interesting. The, uh, the other part of this also is tied to the speed of innovation is because it's all open source software. Now everyone is building on top of each other's works so, work so that the iterative growth of, of that innovation cycle is significant significantly faster than what you see in, in tr the traditional world because you're not hampered by uh, intellectual property rights and, and other types of restrictions. So imagine if in the Silicon Valley, you had the keys to open up any office and any computer of uh, Facebook, Google, et cetera, and just use that software however you want it. That's basically what we have today in, in the blockchain world. You see a new application get rolled out on a Monday, you like it, but think it can do something a little differently. So you can go to their code base, copy it, modify what you want. And on Tuesday, you release a new version of that. And it's, uh, you put your name on it or whatever. And now it's, it's, it's an iteration of what was released on the, on the prior day. So this, this creates this innovation cycle that is quite, quite amazing. And I know, uh, and I don't know if this still happens or not, but uh, there, there, there is this idea of anonymity when it comes to uh, trading, uh, with, like, you know, buying and selling and transactions and that type of thing. And that led, led um, blockchain to be labeled as a great enterprise for, for criminals to be able to do. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because my understanding was it's actually not anonymous. Uh, if, you know, I mean, if I have a hash, which is my, my, my code for, uh, that, that identifies me, you know, if at any point in somewhere down the road, if I ever attach my name to that hash, it's public knowledge forever because it's on the blockchain and it's immutable. That's correct. So basically one, if... if if someone is able to connect your personal identity with a wallet address on the blockchain, then your entire history on that address is, is available. So therefore, it's it's less anonymous from, from that standpoint. Criminals today, like with ransomware criminals and so forth, use uh, use Bitcoin and some, some other crypto less because of perceived anonymity, but more because uh, ease of transferability, right? They don't have to depend on the banking system, which, which tends to be... Uh, uh, less favorable, favorable and more restrictive. Um, 
but yes, the it's it is definitely a common misperception that you have more anonymity in crypto. So there are companies uh, that exist today that focus exclusively on basically reading the blockchain and, and trying to connect wallets in their history and identify people and, and organizations and so forth. And then it's it's basically the, the FBI, IRS, et cetera, actually contract with these companies so that they can basically use that information to help with, with their own direct efforts. So and they sure. were able to do this recently in a, in, a, in a malware attack, I think, where they were Correct. able to trace, play, play, trace back the Bitcoin and they were able to source exactly who was the one who's behind all of it because they're the one right. that paid, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, so now you have, so we talked about Bitcoin and we talked about Ethereum, which maybe that's supposing it's like a second phase. And now there's what thousands of cryptocurrencies that are out there and not really from an, uh, a trading perspective, but even from a you know, use perspective and from an investment perspective, how do you, how, how do you decipher all of these things? Yeah, it's, it's very Difficult. The, the market has a significant amount of information asymmetry, and uh, we we see this commonly where people come into the market, and you know they depending on how much time they have to invest to understand things, it's it's easy to fall prey for projects that are of of lower repute um, and, and things like that. So kind of the easy example would be Dogecoin, right? So Elon Musk's tweets about Dogecoin, and then therefore that gives it some hype and price goes up and, and that just kind of creates this, this cycle. Uh, the unfortunate part though is where, where people buy Dogecoin thinking that it really has a, a strong potential of beating out Bitcoin because the richest man in the world or one of uh, is supporting that coin, right? That's <laughs> Dogecoin was built as a joke. It copied Bitcoin's code, made some minor adjustments, but it was really just rolled out and deployed as, as a joke. Uh, so it doesn't really have much of a future. Elon Musk may give it a little bit, but um, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate when you see people just kind of uh, with a small amount of, of research kind of go down the, these, these specific coins that don't have as much... Uh, future potential. Um, but that's that's what happens when you enter something in such an early stage, right? It, it is high risk, high reward. And um, that's that's part of why people like myself create create funds. There's also ETFs currently applying with SEC. Uh, there there are some some indexes out there. So the market will mature over time. Um, and it's gotten much better than it was a few years ago, right? So in, back in 2017, that bull market had basically just coins and white, white papers, right? You were buying and selling these coins just based on a white paper that someone wrote, uh, whereas at least now you're able to buy and sell coins based on actual applications that are running. So you're, you're, you're at least dealing with something that's real and you can assess it uh, from that perspective. So, so that part's gotten interesting. You have some coins that actually have cash flows and actual distributions to coin holders and actual voting of, of coin holders and, and governance that's taking place. So, so the market's evolved Evolving. Uh, however, it's 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 evolving so fast that it's it's hard for a non uh, non full time person to to really keep up and identify what's 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 good and what's not. And they have cryptocurrencies that are linked to gold, or even they have now stable coins, which is a direct one on one relationship with, with the U.S. dollar. So, if the original idea of cryptocurrency was to be able to be that alternative currency, what does uh, how how does that play into a, a, a crypto that's actually tied to the U.S. dollar. 
Yeah, I mean, so so one of the things of this all being open source and and uh, free for all is that people are going to create with what there's a lot of experimentation going on, right? And um, some of the things that are sticking and definitely include what's what's called stable coins, and these are coins that are tied to the U.S. dollar. Um, there there are coins tied to other currencies and, mm-hmm. and stores of value like gold and the euro, etc. Uh, those haven't. Uh, been as successful. Uh, the stable coin tied to the U.S. dollar has definitely been very successful, and there's there's a handful of them uh, today. It's going to be. We're, we're already seeing hints of the U.S. government trying to uh, figure out how to regulate that space. Um, so so that's going to be interesting. There's actually a, a lawsuit from. New York against uh, Tether, one of one of the uh, one of the bigger stable coins uh, in the industry. So that's that's going to continue to resolve itself o- over time. But the market is is identifying that having a coin tied to the dollar, because that's the way investors still look at things from a value perspective, is is valuable, and therefore these stable coins uh, have have grown significantly. You mentioned that it's hard for somebody who's not a full time. <laughs> Uh, kind of student of this field, maybe to know what they're getting into or to fully understand the pieces of, especially if they're moving so fast. Like what opportunities do people have who uh, maybe they're the blockchain idea is new to them, but they're interested and they want to get involved, but maybe they don't know what they're getting involved in. Yeah. I I mean, I think, People that are interested in the space, I, I encourage them to, to read as much as possible with the, the amount of time that they do have. Uh, and then to, you know, speak with uh, speak with others that spend more time in the space so that at least they can guide them in the right direction. So they're not spending too much time figuring out the details of Dogecoin, for example, and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, over time that that will get better. Uh, there there will be more obvious winners and and so forth. And then as people learn to start to actually use the applications themselves, that'll make things a little more obvious, right? It's just kind of like people didn't understand what social media was really until they actually created the Facebook account. And then as they used it, then it's like, okay, I get it. This is special, right? Same with Tesla owners, right? You but you drive a Tesla, and it's like, okay, I get it. And then that enables these people, some of these people, to to buy the Tesla stock and so forth. So same thing is going to happen with crypto. We're, we're not there yet, right? So even though DeFi has a very high, um, the, the applications in DeFi are, are live and running, it's really crypto people that are using these applications. So they're not mainstream yet, uh, but that's coming. Uh, and that will, that will help people, help onboard people significantly. The question of whether or not crypto is halal, I assume the answer to that question is as, varied as all the different types of crypto you're seeing out there? Yeah, um, I, I think so. You know, f- there are definitely many, uh, many Islamic scholars that have, have said it, it is halal. And, and I think the, the starting point of that is that the, uh, one of the primary, one, one of the principles of Islamic law is that a base ruling for all things is permissibility and allowance. So it's basically, you, one needs to prove that it's not halal uh, to determine that it that it is haram, right? Uh, so so there's that notion uh, of it. Well, one one interesting piece tied to the permissibility of things is that the market is still trying to figure out what it is, right? So when you think of bi- even just Bitcoin, the Bitcoin white paper is called a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, right? So it was focused on the means of exchange property of money that Bitcoin would would replace or or, or service. Uh, now that that 
story, that narrative has changed to not being a means of exchange, but instead a store of value. Uh, so we're still figuring this out. Things are still settling. The technology is, is, is evolving very quickly. So it's akin to people, people that, at least from my readings uh, or whatever I've read indicating that it may not be permissible, permissible, to me, I've seen it as more tied to a misunderstanding of the space, right? It's akin to when the internet first started, uh, some scholars may have said the internet was haram because there were, there were people using it for pornography. And it's just, you know, they, yes, people may do things, but it's not uh, the primary use case and there's so much more to it and, and, and so forth. So, um, so yeah, this, this space is still evolving. And um, of course, whatever you use it for must remain within the parameters of Islamic law, right? So you can say potentially that uh, that crypto is, is halal, but you can't use that crypto for lending with interest and, and leverage and so forth. So uh, the use cases of that crypto, I think, is where there's more applicability of, of Islamic law. So, I mean, I think it, you, you touched on a little bit about, you know, whether it's, whether it's peer-to-peer or it's a store of value. Uh, but but give me an example. I mean, ha, has Bitcoin been used for doing transactions? Because, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, like, okay, let's, you know, maybe if I'm trying to buy a, a Diet Coke or something and I, I give you, you know, 0.01 Bitcoin for it, mm-hmm. you know, like today I got 50 cents, but tomorrow I got $3 for it. How, does, how do those transactions work? If the fun- the cost of the that value is fluctuating so much, uh, so so w- one way to do that for for people that are valuing on the dollar would be you do the transaction and upon, upon receiving you immediately sell it into the dollars, right? So there are cases where you transfer crypto to a relative abroad, they receive that crypto and they immediately convert it to their their local mm. currency and and problem solved there. They're able to avoid some of the transfer. The problems with transferring money abroad, both from a cost as well as a time perspective, because this is immediate, right? They can get it in minutes. Um, and then that's that's also pointing to the use case of stable coins as well, right? So people that do prefer the dollar-based um, tra- transfers, instead of basically sending that person Bitcoin, you can send that person any stable coin. And it has the same advantages of the convenience, the timing, time advantages and so forth, uh, but you don't need to deal with the conversion issues. Mm. But so what's, what's a good use case for Bitcoin, particularly in a transaction? In a tra- in a transaction, I, I I think stable coins have a better use case, right? So for okay. for for now, I think the better use case of uh, Bitcoin is treating it like digital gold that you're using it as okay. a store store of value. Um, and then, given that we are still arguably in the early days, uh, that value is is could potentially increase over time. So it would be in the like you for the example of gold, it would be in the early days nobody really knew how much it was valued. That's just you know, the more people get involved, the more equilibrium you kind of come to as far as the value. Is that what you're talking about? So because it's very early on, that's why the value of, of a Bitcoin or Ethereum can go up and down by two, 300%. But as more people get involved, that there's an equilibrium that's formed. Is that 
Yes, uh, but I, I think people come into this space for different reasons, right? So there are definitely a, lo a lot of speculators uh, that are going into it thinking that as more people come into the space, therefore the price will will go up. Um, but then there, there are a lot of, so over the last, what, uh, about a year almost now, uh, institutional money just started kind of coming into the Bitcoin space. And arguably a good chunk of that institutional money is based on uh, seeing the attractiveness of Bitcoin as a edge against inflation, right? Um, so one, there's a, a correlation play of Bitcoin being having a very low correlation to other major assets and that in and of itself being very attractive. Uh, but then two, in and with with uh, some, a lot of these macro uh, players now seeing inflation risks going up significantly, uh, they're using they're basically allocating instead of previously they were allocating to gold only and now they're allocating to bitcoin and gold together as a hedge against that inflation risk what i've seen of people entering this the cryptocurrency market of the of the institutions are mostly hedge funds um, and hedge funds usually are not looking for a store of value they're trying to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible so uh, my understanding was that they they were coming into the space because they realized that they could make money through the volatility of of the currency not as a kind of hedge against, you know, inflation running from, against the U.S. dollar and those type of things. So, where, 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 what institutions do you know of that that actually are using this as a store of value rather than? just to play on volatility. So an example would be Paul Tudor Jones, right? So he's a macro investor. So they're trying to make plays on the macro evolution in, in the economy. And he put out a, a paper basically explaining why his firm invested in, in Bitcoin. And basically they were comparing it to gold and identifying that basically the the upside potential was significantly overwhelming compared to gold uh, as far as an inflationary hedge. Um, mm. So so there are firms like Paul Tudor Jones's firm uh, that are going into Bitcoin for that inflationary hedge. There are also, as you mentioned, many hedge funds that are going in just purely playing on, they're, they're basically quant firms, right? They're, they're doing just a lot of trading, leveraging, uh, taking advantage of the volatility uh, in crypto to basically uh, make money off of uh, trading. And then there are also firms that are going in, taking advantage of, of other idiosyncrasies, but there, there are nuances that in the, in the market that a, unfortunately a, a casual investor doesn't know about, right? You know, yeah. I mean, I th think you do have this idea of herd mentality. You've seen it in, you know, uh, during the dot-com era, you've seen it in other places as well. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not in favor of regulation, but some type of a control on on how do you not, you know, let the average investor get get ripped off is, is right. there has to be there has to be good balance between the two. Uh, agreed. Um, as, agreed. As and and one thing that feeds into the volatility of crypto is that it is it has proven to be a very reflexive asset, which basically means it, it carries a lot of momentum, right? So once it starts going in either direction, it tends to carry momentum and go extremely in that direction. So yeah. um, so the, that's that's just the nature of, of the beast that may uh, change over time as more participants enter in the space and, and so forth. But for, for now, that's what we have. And and you can use that to your benefit, right? So, I mean, talk a little bit about, um, you know, you are you are an expert in the field. You kind of deal with this thing on a daily basis. So where do you see crypto in 10 years? Yeah, I, I think it's really exciting. I, I, um, I think the mo most people only see Bitcoin and they kind of, don't don't understand the applications behind it in, in Web 3.0 for for all of the other assets in the space, the digital assets. So the 
innovation I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis in, in DeFi is truly incredible. Um, so I'm very excited to see how that eventually pans out to become uh, applications that are more mainstream. Um, and, and, and then you think of just kind of the program, programmability of all of this. It creates uh, new possibilities that we haven't thought of yet, right? So we're still akin to the basically to do another internet analogy we're back in we're in the early internet days where we're copying what exists and putting it on the blockchain just like in the early internet days people said hey let's take an encyclopedia and put it on a website and we'll make it a little better by adding a search function right so that's what we're doing today where we're taking basically lending putting it on DeFi, and making some improvements that, that make it better and so forth yeah, and just like I guess uh, with with when the internet in the early days, you know, there's a lot of money to be made, but there's a lot of money to be lost as well, and so you right. have to you have to go through you be very careful as you as you're going through it. So right, and that's why I believe in kind of you you look at this from a long term perspective and you apply fundamental analysis, and therefore uh, as the market goes through its different cycles, and and those down cycles can be brutal uh, if you have enough conviction in what you've researched and what you've acquired, you're able to basically hold uh, through those cycles and just wait mm-hmm. it out. And, and you, uh, eventually, if, if things pan out, uh, things can be very favorable. What I, from what I see, just as, a, you know, as, a, as an investor, is that you know, I don't know which, which coin will survive or those type of things, but the embedded technology behind it, there's a lot of use cases, and I think it's only going to grow as time goes on. All right. All right. Agreed. And then hopefully also with Islamic finance, there's there's a lot of opportunities Absolutely. that these token uh, concepts can, can be used for that. Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. The Amana Funds are distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services, member FINRA and SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, the investment advisor to the Amana Funds. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. The Amana Funds do not currently invest in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, collectively crypto, are digital assets whose ownership and behavior are determined by participants in online, peer-to-peer networks that connect computers that run publicly accessible or open-source software. The value of crypto is not backed by any government, corporation, or other identified body. Exchanges where crypto is traded have experienced technical and operational issues, making crypto prices unavailable at times. In addition, the cash market in crypto has been the target of fraud and manipulation. Crypto has generally exhibited significant price volatility relative to more traditional asset classes. Crypto may also experience significant price volatility as a result of market fraud and manipulation. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax accounting or legal advice to our clients and all investors are advised to consult with their tax accounting or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. 
suitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.